I have asked for this radio and television time. I want to take this occasion to talk to you about what that law means to every American. I have tried to educate. If I have not succeeded altogether, I have certainly educated myself. I see a great nation upon a great continent, blessed with a great wealth of national resources. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Ratified, a market-scale radio show shining a light on the intersection of business and policy. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Hope you enjoyed that melodramatic intro. Gotta love some classic American leader speeches. Uh, You know, always trying to set the tone the right way. And, you know, really hoping that that did the trick. So, uh, if you haven't already, please subscribe to MarketScale Radio for more Ratified and more of our original B2B programming. You can do that on Spotify, you can do that on Apple Podcasts, or you can listen live on our website. That's at MarketScale.com industries. Also, make sure to follow along on Twitter. That'll be at Voice of B2B for my personal Twitter antics, as well as at MarketScale for the company's Twitter antics, though they're not quite as antics-y as mine. That's not a word, but we're going to ignore that. So last time on Ratified, we spoke about California's AB5 legislation, which is looking to restructure classifications for employees, or, you know, before this, independent contractors in the gig economy. Solid insights in that one. I definitely recommend you give that a listen. Some thoughts from a Stanford law professor as well as an organizer at Rideshare Drivers United. On this episode of Ratified, we're exploring net neutrality's future. We're looking big picture, definitely more national with the policy here. Net neutrality has been the talk of internet activists. It's been the talk of ISPs, of uh, civil liberties and rights campaigners. And it's concerned online users for several years now. The version we know, though, is gone. It was repealed by a Jeet Pies FCC, and that repeal was solidified by a D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. So, per usual, to start off our ratified, we're going to be giving you the preamble. And this is where we're at with net neutrality today. So to give you some quick backstory to set the stage, internet regulations for a long time have been sitting in a dispute between two commissions. There's the FCC and the FTC. So, FCC, FTC. Two different sides. The FCC regulates communications, Federal Communications Commissions, and uh, it's specific to information in transit or the movement of data from point A to point B. That's kind of the, the broad scope of how it regulates and what it regulates. The FTC regulates trade, Federal Trade Commission. Uh, It regulates trade and business practices, everything from antitrust laws to fraudulent social media ads. So they've got a wide scope. And in the context of the internet, they uh, they regulate data that is processed or stored. So in the broader context of internet regulation, the FCC, which oversees telecom services, data in transit, all of that, it's a little more proactive. While the FTC, which regulates information services, data processing and storage, that's more reactive. So you've got internet regulation from the FCC from a proactive perspective, regulation from the FTC of the internet, which is more reactive. So that's the backstory there. At least of the two commissions, there's more backstory. We're diving deep, folks. We're diving deep on Ratified. So a lot of back and forth happened for decades, trying to decide who had the oversight to regulate the internet. Was it the FCC? Was it the FTC? Eventually, it was brought to the Supreme Court. And at this point, they ruled that broadband internet was an information service under the FTC. That was a big decision. However, there were two major caveats in that decision. One was that rather than a law defining broadband as an internet service you know, across the board, instead, they said that it was up to the FCC to define whether broadband was an information service or a telecom service. So the power was actually left in the decision of the agency, not uh, you know, codified into law. 
you would think, okay, then why didn't the FCC, if they really wanted control over the internet, just, at that point, take it into their own hands? Well, you know, there was some partisanship there, some politicking there, uh, that, you know, we didn't want to step on people's toes is kind of the motivation there. That's oversimplifying why they didn't jump into it immediately. But basically, this was now internet under FTC rule. However, the FCC had the power to define whether or not this was an information service or whether or not this was a telecom service. That was caveat number one. Caveat number two was an important dissenting opinion from Judge Scalia. And he wrote saying that broadband is indeed information and telecommunications and not just one or the other. That it needs to exist both in the FTC realm and the FCC realm. And it it gives a great argument for why broadband is both an information service and a telecom service. You should go read that dissenting opinion. He's got a great analogy to pizza delivery that I love. Because who doesn't love pizza and who doesn't love pizza analogies? So the FCC settled with this decision, partially also because they had an assumption that they had some tangential or, if you want to be extremely specific, quote, ancillary authority to chime in on internet regulation when they felt it was appropriate. Uh, However, there was another court decision in 2007 that ruled that the FCC had zero ancillary authority over telecoms. Basically, they tried to exert, uh, you know, a little... um, a little ownership, a little leadership over how to guide future internet regulations, and uh, the courts ruled, hey, look, you have not stepped in, you have not said that the FTC cannot treat this as an information service, you can't have it both ways, you can't let the FTC regulate it, but then also you want to chime in when you feel like it falls under the FCC's oversight. So, unfortunately, sorry FCC, you don't have ancillary authority over telecoms. It basically moved them out of the conversation entirely. And in this decision, the FCC was left without any sort of teeth to actually regulate the internet proactively. We only had reactive regulation from the FTC. So reclassification at this point would be a political gamble. And as much as, you know, these decisions, we'd like to look beyond the partisanship of it, there is a lot of partisanship that goes into passing legislation like this. And the Obama administration, at this point in time, wanted to pass something big in the internet world. They wanted another piece of landmark legislation, and this felt like a great opportunity to finally listen to some concerns of different parties and deliver on something that, you know, transformed the internet for the future. And lo... The Obama administration pushed th- uh, pushed forward their open internet order in 2015. And lo, they pushed through their open internet order in 2015, more commonly known as net neutrality. So this decision deferred to the initial Supreme Court ruling that put final classification decisions in the hands of the FCC. They said, hey, you know what? We're going to cash in on this uh, this power that you gave us. This is now uh, falling under FCC regulation, so we can be more proactive with our regulation. And they used Scalia's dissent, which laid out cleanly why this was both information and telecommunications, uh, which gave them you know, a little more legal recourse to actually make this kind of broad switch for internet regulation. So they embraced reclassification, they went all in amid a boom in broadband, and they pushed forward legislation that gave proactive measures for internet regulation. This brought things to the table like A, no blocking of lawful content, B, no throttling, C, no paid prioritization, D, uh, a public disclosure of commercial terms and management practices, and that's just bare bones. There's way more uh, to unpack there, but we just don't have the time. So opponents took this open internet order of 2015 to court. It mostly failed, uh, and that honestly cemented net neutrality's legitimacy because the opponents tried to take it to court, and the court kept shutting down those challenges, which actually made net neutrality feel stronger. However, with Ajit Pai's 2017 appointing as FCC chairman, he wanted to bring back light-touch regulation to the internet. So he repealed the open internet order, this was in 2017, and he said he would allow for the natural and unprecedented growth of borderless internet that we had seen over the last 30 years. He wanted to re-encourage this natural growth 
with light touch regulation. And the repeal also mandated that states had no authority to make their own legislation. This was now at a federal level across the board, no more net neutrality regulations. This repeal, too, was taken to court. People love taking things to court. And on October 1st, 2019, a D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals ruled that the repeal was constitutional, so net neutrality is dead, and therefore the repeal will go forward. However, big however, they ruled that the FCC's decision to block states from developing their own regulations was actually unconstitutional. They said the repeal in general was met with disdain uh, from open internet advocates. Uh, It was met with praise from ISPs and a lot of that um, uncertainty about the future of the internet, as well as kind of the broad generalization that the FCC pushed through saying, hey, you know, our decision is final here. They weren't convinced. They said that was not constitutional and therefore net neutrality is now in the hands of the states. And that's where we're at today. That's the end of the preamble. That's where net neutrality falls in 2019 going into 2020. So what does the future look like? What do we do now with net neutrality in the hands of the states? How do we move forward taking into account not only some of the concerns of ISPs, but also some of the concerns of internet users, the concerns of civil liberties advocates and activists. So we're going to hear from two guests. These are both pre-recorded conversations, only slightly edited for time. But we're going to hear from Chad Marlowe. He's the senior advocacy and policy counsel expert with the American Civil Liberties Union, the ACLU. He's an advocate for a free and open internet. And Chad will explain how a state-by-state net neutrality framework could play out who's necessary to advise on quality legislation, and he's going to give his take on some of the prevailing arguments from the net neutrality battle. But first, we're going to hear from Matt Polka. He's the CEO of ACA Connects, and ACA Connects represents almost 800 small and medium-sized independent telecom operators, or ISPs, across the nation. And he works with Washington to ensure fair treatment of these small players so they can provide, quote, affordable video broadband and phone services to Main Street America. So Polka and his members have felt a weight lifted with the repeal of net neutrality. And he joins us to explain his perspective on Title II regulations, how they affect small ISPs, and whether lawmakers can put partisanship aside to roll out new federal legislation. So we're going to hear from Chad Marlowe. We're going to hear from Matt Polka. First up is Matt. Let's jump into that conversation. I'm joined now by Matt Polka, CEO of ACA Connects. Matt, welcome. How you doing? Nice to be here, Daniel. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. All right, Matt. So to get some context here, uh, when the FCC repeal was being taken to court in 2018, I know that ACA Connects filed to intervene in the case, siding with the FCC in their defense of light touch regulations. So could you give a brief summary of your role in those discussions and uh, how ACA Connects contributed or you know added their perspective to some of those court decisions? Sure. Glad to. Actually, our involvement goes... Uh, before 2018, uh, frankly, when the previous chairman, Chairman Tom Wheeler at the FCC, uh, decided under his administration to impose net neutrality regulation, which included the imposition of Title II common carrier regulation on broadband uh, internet service providers. And that was a, a significant change from the FCC's regulatory regime prior to that, which was as an information service for broadband providers with more of a light touch. Uh, and frankly, the the thinking behind that light touch of regulation was here was an industry that, that had grown on its own, basically, uh, within the free market to develop uh, a service that was uh, widely accepted and embraced by consumers all across the world. Uh, and basically, you know, internet service providers in our industry went ahead and created this industry, which hadn't existed before. Uh, Chairman Wheeler came in with a a, a more heavy-handed approach to make uh, internet service providers common carrier providers, which actually goes back to uh, 1934 era regulation of telecom providers, telephone providers. 
And frankly, uh, when you look at the various provisions of Title II, which is very, very dense and complicated, uh, it contained a, a number of significant provisions that were harmful to the further growth of the Internet economy, such as rate regulation. Uh, and as a, a, a representative of, of smaller operators, which our ACA Connects Association is, our members demonstrated very clearly uh, to the subsequent administration, Chairman Pai, that Chairman Wheeler's imposition of Title II regulation actually had a detrimental impact and effect on further broadband deployment, particularly in smaller markets and rural areas. And the reason for that is when the threat of rate regulation is, is hung over the head of smaller broadband providers, it's very, very difficult to find funding for further broadband deployment. Uh, and many of our members uh, filed affidavits with Chairman Pai, Ajit Pai, who then became the chairman of the FCC, to say the, the Wheeler regulations really needed to be repealed so that we could deploy more broadband, which is actually what Washington wants us to do. So we, we demonstrated that the Wheeler regulations under Title II created a chilling effect on broadband deployment. And we demonstrated as well that once the once Chairman Pai repealed those Title II regulations, financial markets opened up and our members as smaller independent uh, broadband providers deployed significantly more broadband just as Washington intended. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because um, at the core of a lot of ACA Connect's uh, you know, practice is obviously advocating for mid-sized telecom operators and in uh, you know a lot of the, the quotes that you've had on this story um, and obviously in the actions portrayed, um, you know, participating in uh, giving some insight and affidavits for that court decision, you've explained that kind of pressure that gets placed on telecom operators under common carrier regulations. Um, you know, you, you said obviously it includes rate regulation, um, but you've concisely said that these classifications under Title II or common carrier keep these small operators from investing and innovating. Could you break down more specifically what that dynamic is? In what way is there a deterrence of investing and innovation when rate regulation gets added into the mix? Well, it, it, it... The rate regulation was an important factor in, in the regulations that were imposed by Chairman Wheeler, sure. the previous FCC administration, but Title II contains a lot more. Uh, there, and the order that Chairman, uh, Chairman Wheeler uh, imposed at the time, it wasn't just simply the threat of rate regulation, but it, it reserved to the FCC uh, unto itself for further regulatory treatment uh, holding broadband providers to what was called a general conduct standard, which, frankly, here again, is, is a very vague regulatory concept that basically said, look, if we, the FCC, think you as a broadband provider have violated any rules uh, uh, relative to consumers, we can call you in and basically hold you to what we consider to be a violation of a general conduct standard, a very vague threshold of, of accountability. And, and again, when we talk about innovation, investment, uh, deployment, and the need for our members to be able to have uh, funding sources supporting them, whenever you have threats of, of, of those kinds of regulatory impositions, it creates uncertainty in the financial markets. In addition to that, there, there were other requirements uh, for smaller providers, at least, uh, that made the economics of providing service much more difficult. For instance, when we think of some of the provisions that existed in the Wheeler regulations at the time, which was, uh, as I recall, the, the requirement to have uh, on every staff of a broadband provider uh, a certification officer to certify that uh, uh, all, all uh, you know, broadband functions were uh, or being handled correctly for, you know, consumer usage, et cetera. And, and while that may sound innocuous, when you talk about things from a smaller provider, when you're talking about, you know, the, the need to add more staff, more reporting requirements, more regulatory oversight, uh, more cost, because again, you have to pay for these ad additional requirements. You have to have pay, you have to pay for outside legal help uh, for compliance obligations. It, it, it just impacted the economics of providing more broadband. So in essence, wh where the focus became under the Wheeler regulations was, was more money 
that had to be focused on compliance rather than money being put actually into the ground to deploy more broadband. And, and Chairman Pai came along a few years later with a change of administration and said, look, I, I want to encourage broadband providers to, to deploy more faster, higher speed broadband, not only in urban areas, but rural areas. And, and consequently, the only way to do that is to do what industry did in the first place, which is to build it on its own with a light touch of regulation, which basically created what we know today as a worldwide internet economy. So uh, a key ACA Connects argument um, for small and mid-sized ISPs to um, avoid common carrier regulations is that, uh, you know, at least for ACA Connects members specifically, there's an agreement to willingly avoid some of the practices that often uh, are most in the public conversation around net neutrality. That includes things like throttling, paid prioritization, general blocking of content for customers. Um, is there anything legally binding there or beyond that? You know, can small businesses, I guess in your eyes, can small businesses live up to this, uh, the idea of that virtuous cycle vision forever? Are, are the profit incentives that motivate larger telecom operators not there for the small and mid-sized independent operators? You know, why or why not? What are your thoughts there? Sure. Uh, well, well, this is the irony of, uh, of the whole effort by Chairman Wheeler, uh, somehow suggesting that internet service providers, whether our members as smaller providers, and again, ACA Connects represents 800 companies across the country in smaller markets, rural areas. We're not the Comcast of the world, but we're much mm -hmm. smaller uh, providers in rural areas. Uh, but he basically said that all ISPs are bad because we're blocking, throttling, discriminating, uh, creating fast lanes and slow lanes and consequently need to be you know, regulated under common carrier regulation. Well, the fact of the matter was, is that was untrue. Uh, we existed and created this broadband economy because we, our members at ACA Connects as broadband providers, did not and have not blocked, throttled, discriminated, or created fast lanes and slow lanes. There was a perception per, uh, th that, that occurred because of mm -hmm. one or two instances brought about by larger ISPs when we think of uh, uh, Comcast one time 15 or 20 years ago throttling BitTorrent, which was basically, you know, the Napster of the time. But, right. but, there, but there aren't examples of, of that kind of blocking, throttling, discriminating or creating paid fast and slow lanes anywhere else. It was it became more of a political issue rather than an, an, an actual issue. And the fact of the matter is, is that our members today live by uh, every day and have from the very start, no blocking, throttling, discriminating, paid faster, slow lanes, because the fact of the matter, Daniel, is that's bad business. If we did that with any of our customers, whether residential or business, we would be hurting ourselves. Why would we want to create such problems and obstacles with our customers? So as we think about this net neutrality issue and what should be done about it, We've said to Congress that actually should fix this problem. We'll sign a bill tomorrow that says, let's take the, the true net neutrality principles and put them into law. No blocking, no throttling, no discrimination, no paid prioritization. Apply that to both ISPs as well as the, the edge providers in the Internet ecosystem, the Facebooks, mm -hmm. the Googles, the Amazons, the Twitters. I mean, again, it's, it's a pipe and there, there are users on both sides. Let's apply the same net neutrality principles to both sides, but let's not include Title II because Title II is not necessary. We don't have an economic business incentive to want to block, throttle, discriminate, or create fast and slow lanes. Let's put the, net, the true net neutrality principles into law. We'll sign that tomorrow because that's what our members do each and every day. We have no incentive to do otherwise. Yeah, you know, it's starting in 2010 onward, um, you know, I think the, the Internet saw continued transformation with the broadband explosion, introduction of a mobile populace, uh, you know, clearly increased access to internet, um, and a lot of the practices that were eventually blocked by the open internet order in 2015, you know, I think the argument from um, net neutrality advocates was that those practices could be seen as profitable, at least to the larger ISPs. Um, so I think that's where that argument 
obviously comes from and you know you've been in dc talking on this for years so this isn't new to you obviously but without protections against throttling or paid prioritization or blocking of content um even though that wasn't really happening before 2015 uh is there any profit incentive in things like paid prioritization in creating multiple lanes for content either at a consumer level uh, or a commercial level? Well, l- let me say this. Um, when I talked about the net neutrality principles uh, and, sure. and something that our members do in terms of, or, or they don't, which is create fast and slow lanes, I'm talking about this in the commercial aspect. Uh, right. our, our members live in smaller markets, rural areas. We work oftentimes with, with uh colleges, universities, hospitals, where access to data and speed of data is is critically important, particularly in in the healthcare sense. Frankly, in in some senses uh, that are non-commercial, there probably should be a fast lane. There should be a fast lane. I mean, if a doctor is trying to help a hospital or a patient, you know, we want to make sure that that connection has the best possible connection. Uh, So in in a non-commercial sense, I think that there are certainly reasons why you would want to ensure that you know hospitals and other emergency uh, services have that that ultimate connection, but otherwise, mm-hmm. in a in a commercial sense, you, there's there there's there's not the need for this because uh, again, of what our members are doing today in our small markets, because of the fact that Chairman Pai has lifted the threat of rate regulation, allowing. In, an influx of, of capital investment into our system to into our systems to allow for greater broadband deployment. We now can provide speeds that are 100, 500, uh, one gig or, or more uh, d- down speeds to residences, residents, residential customers, as well as commercial customers that are adequate and, and meet their needs. So there's no need to create fast and slow lanes because everybody has a fast lane. Okay. Now, now I will say this, um, there has been the, the counter argument from edge providers, meaning mm-hmm. those who, who work and live on the edge of the internet, and it's actually more than the edge because they're literally on top of it, uh, saying that unless there's regulation of ISPs, then we uh, edge providers who need help won't be able to survive. Well, let's be honest about who these edge providers are, okay? Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, Google. Now we have new over-the-top services, Disney+. Plus. We have Hulu. We have so many other services that are taking advantage of our members' uh, uh, broadband pipe to customers with, without compensating the ISP for use of that. That's a whole other issue. We're not arguing about that. But my, my point here is, it takes money to create the infrastructure to allow consumers to access whatever they lawfully want to a- access on the internet. And that's why it was so important to have Chairman Wheeler's Title II order repealed, which has allowed for greater financial investment, particularly for smaller ISPs, to build the infrastructure that's needed to keep up with the demand. Uh, we're, we're talking today on November 13th, one day after Disney Plus just launched, where in one day they have over 10 million new subscribers that are now consuming way more than 70% of all internet traffic on our members' systems, in addition to Netflix and Hulu and Amazon and Apple and all of the others, okay? We have to pay for that infrastructure. Consumers want a fast speed. Gamers, let's talk about gamers. They they demand a, a high-speed connection with very, very low latency. There can't be any kind of lateness at all in the signal because in gaming, it's it's that much, it's, it's critical. So we have to build that infrastructure, we as ISPs. And, and if we're threatened with, with imposition of heavy-handed regulation, then, then those who lend money to our members to build infrastructure simply won't be there. And then consumers won't have what they want. So that's why these issues are, are so very, very important. ACA Connects has uh, advocated for legislation um, that prevents operators from blocking or impairing broadband access to subscribers on legal content, uh, you know, subject to reasonable network management practices. 
is this side of um, net neutrality regulation something that ACA connects is back in the fray, uh, you know, helping to um, either propose some new legislation or work together with lawmakers to assuage some of those concerns that come with a repeal of the open Internet order? Well, we have. We, we have already said to the House and the Senate, Democrats, Republicans, look, we can solve net neutrality tomorrow. All it takes it is willing members to work together across the aisle uh, to pass a, a piece of legislation that says we're going to take the, the basic net neutrality protections for consumers and put them into law. No blocking, no throttling, no discrimination, no paid prioritization. Consumers can access any lawful content that they want want to access uh, without any degradation whatsoever. We'll, we'll sign that tomorrow. Uh, what our legislation that we've proposed and frankly, what others have proposed uh, is basically the net neutrality principles without Title II. Do you think lawmakers are prepared to create legislation that addresses the nuances of both sides, you know, in quotes here, both protecting an open Internet as well as small businesses that deliver telecom to their communities? You know, do, do you think they're prepared to really tackle this issue? Uh, and then in your eyes, what would positive legislation look like? Uh, I think passage um, of net neutra- true net neutrality legislation that would solve this problem from a regulatory perspective is, is not in our absolutely near future. Uh, what we have now today is a is, is a situation where, depending on who wins the White House, the FCC chairman of, of that administration then develops net neutrality policy, which creates what we call a ping pong effect, uh, whether it's heavily regulatory or, or lightly regulated, which has an impact on financial markets, investment, innovation, deployment, infrastructure, uh, so on and so forth. We've suggested, as many have, is it's high time for Congress to really solve this problem by by looking at the interests of uh, Internet service providers, edge providers, and most importantly, consumers, and, and crafting compromise legislation that would solve this problem, which in our view is uh, putting into, into language the true net neutrality pr- principles which we've talked about. You know, right now, as we're really in the midst, I mean, it's only November of 2019 and the whole 2020 presidential elections a year away. But I mean, we are so in the midst of a presidential election where the politics become so white hot on just about everything that it's really unlikely for any serious legislation uh, in Congress to occur on a compromise net neutrality bill. Uh, it, it, it certainly is something that we continue to advocate for and suggest to both Republicans and Democrats, Senate and the House, that compromise bill would be good for consumers. It would be good for ISPs. It would be good for edge providers. And we can move on knowing that that there would be a, a free flow of capital into our markets that would encourage investment and deployment and building of infrastructure. Uh, but I don't, I don't really think that that's likely, at least through next November. Uh, you know, the, the following year, once we see a new administration come in, there, there's always hope that maybe in the first year uh, of, uh, you know, a new administration or, or a reelected administration, that it's possible to move some bigger issues once the election's behind us. Uh, and that's certainly our intent. We want to encourage, we at ACA Connects want to encourage lawmakers to find a legislative solution to the net neutrality problem and the ping pong effect, but it's going to take political will and it's going to, it's going to take members facing what has been a very, very contentious political issue to say, look, it's time for us to solve this problem once and for all for the benefit of consumers, ISPs, edge providers, investment, employment, uh, and innovation going forward. All right, Matt Polka, again, CEO of ACA Connects, which represents small and independent ISPs nationwide. Matt, thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure, Daniel. Thanks so much.
So again, that was Matt Polka, CEO of ACA Connects. We're going to take a quick, quick, quick break. Only about 15 to 30 seconds. Ooh, you know, we wish we could take longer breaks here, but we are short on time. we got to get you all the content. When we come right back, we're going to be hearing from Chad Marlowe, Senior Advocacy and Policy Counsel with the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union. He's going to be chatting more of a uh, legislative uh, free speech rights approach to net neutrality, um, giving his thoughts on some of the issues that ISPs have with uh, the old net neutrality legislation and how states could move forward to uh, meet everyone's needs. So we'll be right back taking that quick break. Do you need more video content for your website and marketing channels? Want to create your own company podcast? MarketScale partners with companies to create the B2B content they need. Ask us how today. I'm joined now by Chad Marlowe, Senior Advocacy and Policy Counsel at the ACLU, or the American Civil Liberties Union, and he focuses on privacy, surveillance, and technology issues at the ACLU. Chad, it's a pleasure to have you on. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. So net neutrality, at least in the form of the open internet order of 2015, is basically dead for now. Its spirit lives on in the states and their ability to uh, avoid federal preemption on passing their own legislation uh, due to that uh, court decision that came down here a few months ago. So was this seen as a short-term compromise or a win for open internet advocates? Why or why not? Right. So, so I think it was a uh, it was a short term victory that I think is going to ultimately move us to a long term victory. The reason I say it's a short term victory is, uh, you know, right now the the FCC and its current composition is has has shown uh, a a disinterest uh, in protecting net neutrality for Americans. Um, that is in stark contrast uh, to pretty much everyone else. Uh, you know, politically speaking. 83% of Americans are in favor of net neutrality, including, interestingly, you know, 89% of Democrats, 86% of independents, and 75% of Republicans. Knowing this, it's not surprising that the states have an equal interest uh, in promoting net neutrality, uh, you know, not just because it's politically popular, but because it's very important to states to make sure uh, that their citizens and residents have access to all lawful content on the internet and not just the content that those people providing the internet either want them to have access to or want them to uh, to have better or worse access to. And so the states have been moving to kind of fill in the void uh, where the FCC has kind of backed off. Uh, the FCC, as you know, when they, when they abandoned net neutrality, uh, one of the things they said is that uh, although we are going to do nothing on the subject, the states can't either. Uh, and what the court in the Mozilla versus the FCC decision held is that you can't do that. If you take action, FCC, then you can tell the states they can't take contrary action. But if you say we're out of the game, you then can't tell the states that they can't get in the game. And so that that victory now opens the door uh, for, for the states to be able to take action to protect their neutrality. The reason I talk about a long-term victory is I think, you know, given the overwhelming public support for net neutrality, uh, the position that the FCC is taking right now is not tenable in the long term. And it is our hope uh, that when the, the, the political winds change in Washington, D.C., uh, that this terrible mistake uh, will be undone uh, by an FCC with a different future composition. And now that the future of net neutrality is in the hands of the states, this opens up uh, new opportunities, but also new issues. Lack of uniformity could make it hard. Uh, some people have said it potentially impossible for some companies to comply. ISPs say it could inhibit the natural growth of, quote, borderless Internet. Uh, and it could create irregularities in that balance between protecting ISPs, free speech rights and the public's free speech rights. So. In your eyes, what are some of the major legislative issues that you could see arising with state-mandated net neutrality that differs state to state? 
Right. Well, 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 first, let me actually address those arguments, because because really, I, I think they're they're not accurate at all. The idea that that some of the companies are saying that if all of the various states pass different versions of net neutrality, it will be hard for us to comply is just flat out wrong. If they want to comply, all they have to do is abide by the most stringent standards um, and, and they're there. Uh, so again, I think that's that's a little bit of a red herring argument. I also think the idea that somehow getting rid of net neutrality is going to expand the borders of the internet, I think it's more accurate to say getting rid of net neutrality is going to expand the borders of ISP companies' wallets. Uh, but but in terms of expanding the internet. Nothing works better than giving individuals the access to all the lawful content that they want to have access to without their internet service provider being able to say, we like this content more than that content for business reasons, for political reasons, or for other reasons. And so, so again, I think that, that you know, the ISP companies are not going to come out and say net neutrality because it prevents us from going from being extremely rich to sickly rich. That's not a very compelling conversation. And so they say things like, oh, it's very difficult for us to comply, even though they are the ones who lobbied to get rid of net neutrality. If they were concerned about compliance, we could have just kept it there. And the suggestion that somehow it will benefit the public to not have free and open access to the information on the internet, I also think that that's a little faulty. So to your question, um, really, the, the, the only challenges for state legislation in terms of enacting net neutrality legislation is making sure to do it right. Uh, and that means enacting laws that prevent ISP companies from blocking content that they don't like, from throttling content, which is just kind of an Internet word for slowing down content they don't prefer, for speeding up or prioritizing content that they do prefer. And again, prefer can be a, can be a variety of things. You know, there was there was a case uh, in Canada uh, where in the absence of net neutrality, the ISP company was actually in a labor dispute and it actually slowed down and blocked the, the union's website, right? So, so the reason for deciding that, you know, they want access to their website to be fast and the union's website to be slow that's prioritization, which shouldn't happen. And then just general prohibitions on interfering with or discriminating against against different products. And, and one of the areas that I think if you're talking about, you know, the business of ISPs and where they're really interested, and, and, and if you want to broaden it out, the business of of technology providers, edge providers, and companies on the internet, and this is, by the way, part of the reason why almost all edge providers, content providers on the internet favor net neutrality is because we've seen in the past that the ISP companies who have diverse businesses can do things that actually, you know, hurt, you know, competitive products, right? Like there was a case where um, AT&T, Sprint, T-Mobile, and Verizon all blocked mobile wallet applications like Google Wallet because they competed with their own wallet applications. Um, and they can also block, because of their market power, you can have small tech startups, either companies or online content providers, who provide a better product or a better service. But these companies, because they control the access lane to the internet, prevent customers from getting a quality experience with those products or services, uh, or just make it a worse experience, and they gain a, a, a kind of an unfair competitive advantage over it. So, so I think that when you talk about state laws, what we're really focusing in on is having laws that protect the public's access to free information, as well as, as companies who may have better products but lack market power in ability to compete against the giants who control access to the internet. So much of the conversation around keeping net neutrality regulations uh, focuses on the uh, the proactive commitments that the um, Open Internet Order of 2015 pushed forward. Those included preventing blocking of content, throttling, paid prioritization. Those are the big three. Uh, ISPs argue that they aren't incentivized to do any of the above because it would turn away customers and be bad for business. In your view... Is that an accurate take? Why or why not? Right. So that so that's that's so that's wrong. That's wrong for two reasons. First of all, you know, if 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 that were true, why did they spend you know ten million dollars lobbying to get rid of net neutrality rules uh, if if they would have no impact on their business to actually take advantage of those rules being eliminated? 
That makes no sense whatsoever. That doesn't, you know, that doesn't pass the straight face test. But what I would say is if you want an example of, of, of how they can make more money, the, the way that they do it is so let's say, for example, uh, you have, you know, Domino's Pizza and Pizza Hut in the same area. And, and uh, you know, Domino's or Pizza Hut says, you know, listen, our pizza's our pizza. It's pretty much a 50-50 draw on the consumer base. But we will pay you, ISP company, extra money so that if a consumer comes on, and let's say Domino's is the customer here of the ISP company, uh, we'll pay you extra money. So if they try to get on the Domino's website, it's extra fast, right? Whereas if they try to go on Pizza Hut's website, it's going to be kind of a slow experience. And, you know, to the extent that our website contains, say, video content, the customer can have a great experience with us, not a really great experience with Pizza Hut. And even when they go online to order, they'll be able to order from Domino's really quickly. Pizza Hut may be kind of laggy and delayed. And, and so the ISP company can make money off of that. Now, the, the, what they understand is as long as they don't kind of pull back the curtain on this and do all these degradations and prioritizations all at once, customers may not, may not fully realize why they're having different experiences online. They may, for example, think, oh, Pizza Hut has a really bad website. It's so slow, right? They may not even attribute the problem to the ISP companies or realize that it's actually intentional. And so there is lots of opportunities for them to make money off of it and not necessarily degrade the trust because consumers won't realize that, again, the better service they're getting somewhere and the worse service they're getting elsewhere is not just a happenstance of technology, but actually a very deliberate decision being made by the ISP companies in order to make more revenue. What's interesting about crafting internet policy is that internet policy experts and scholars, the ones that, uh, you know, you would hope that uh, we turn to for advice, have traditionally been small in number. They've been pretty spread out across the world, and they've been focused on a variety of different subsects of the internet. Uh, so, you know, there's, I think in general, compared to other um, legislative areas that draw a lot of attention, there's less homogeny in the research. So are the right people being consulted on net neutrality legislation to protect the interest of all parties? Uh, and if so, you know, what are some of the kinds of people that bring their expert opinion into the legislative process? Yeah, so, so I would say that, I, I mean, I don't think there's any question that the, that, that the people who need to be engaged in this debate are engaged in this debate. Cool, you know? great. And I, and I think it's, it's very important. Um, I think society as a whole, and it's certainly important to the ACLU, that when we say every, you know, everyone uh, who has an opinion should be engaged in this process, we mean that, we, including the ISP companies. Uh, but I think what, what you will find is when, when you look at the breadth of people, both experts and lay people in the population, uh, who, who have kind of well-developed, thought-out opinions on net neutrality, those who fall in the kind of anti-net neutrality area um, tend to either be from the ISP companies or have connections to the ISP companies. And, and I want to particularly call out one of them, which is IG Pai, the chair of the FCC, who used to work for Verizon, who is an ISP company. Almost everyone who doesn't have a connection to ISP companies or represent their interests either directly or indirectly or have a financial interest in them is in favor of net neutrality. So I think that tells you something, right? If you remove the people who have a direct or indirect interest in getting rid of net neutrality and you just look at people who generally use and experience the internet or provide content, you have overwhelming uniformity. I want to, I don't want to suggest it's a hundred percent because you, you can't get a hundred percent of people to say at noon, this, you know, it's the middle of the day, but, but you have overwhelming numbers. I mean, in our fractured society, where do you ever see 83% of Americans agreeing on anything, right? They do on net neutrality. So while net neutrality advocates often point to uh, the Comcasts of the world as the ISPs that need to be reined in, uh, the regulations also affect small and mid-sized ISPs. Uh, and both realms of the telecom market, both the large conglomerates and the independent operators, 
point to rural investment as one of the reasons why net neutrality didn't work for them, saying that Title II common carrier regulations discouraged investment in fiber deployment to underserved communities. Uh, Let's start with the big players. Does that argument hold water for them? Um, what, What are your thoughts there? Right. So 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 I don't want to misquote the, the company here, but I'm going to give it my best guess and world forgive me if I have the wrong company. But I am fairly certain there is a recording. I believe it's of the CEO of Verizon telling his shareholders in a shareholder meeting that they are going to continue with significant investments in expanding broadband access, including in rural areas, regardless of whether net neutrality rules are in place or not. Uh, and so, again, I think that that is so. So I think that you know the the, the comment of a of a major ISP company's CEO on the subject. Uh, I I feel comfortable letting that stand where it is. Uh, it's it's only when it became convenient to suggest that somehow eliminating net neutrality would equate to more investment in rural areas. Uh, did they decide to make that argument in order to advance uh, the, the demise of net neutrality? So so I think that the comment the honest comment behind closed doors uh, uh, holds more holds more weight now for the small and mid-sized independent ISPs across the nation uh, they're doing a lot of this cable deployment in their communities as well um, common carrier regulations put new standards on these smaller players such as uh, potential rate regulations as well as being under title two uh, a necessity to put more money spent on compliance work, administrative work, and personnel, um, and they argue instead of on new broadband deployment. Do you feel like the open internet order may have placed an extra layer of strain on smaller players uh, in its attempt to rein in the larger ISPs that was potentially unaccounted for? Right. So that's a, that's a great question, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to push back on the question just sure, a little sure. bit, right? I, I think that uh, it is... Uh, not helpful, right, to equate the net neutrality debate with 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 the the investment, uh, 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 you know, in in expanding, uh, you know, mid and small size ISP companies, right? You, I, I think it is very possible in this country to, on the one hand, uh, be able to create an open and free internet for all Americans, right? Where, you know, for example, uh, you know, I'm, I am, I am concerned. You know, you have students in public school, right? If you have a student in a very liberal area, is it possible that that student, if they're a Trump supporter, might not be able to get access? to the president's information? Is it possible in a very conservative area that, that a student who is you know, pro-Elizabeth Warren or who is gay cannot get access to their information? Is it possible that governments who are researching bills can't get access to information that support society ISPs don't agree because their internet is being compromised? That is an issue in and of itself, right? And it should be treated in and of itself. If the small and mid-sized ISP companies feel that certain portions of the regulations, you know, rate standards and those sort of things disadvantage them, let's discuss those. But there's no need to tie that into net neutrality, because at the end of the day, if the Internet becomes a, 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 a tool that is compromised by the business and political opinions of those who provide access to it, we lose the Internet that, that we have grown to appreciate uh, at the beginning of the 21st century. That would be a major loss. So these, these, these secondary issues, while important, should be disentangled from the concept of what we need to do to keep the, op- the Internet open and free. As I was prepping for this interview with you, I found an article of yours that lays out that you think ISPs are, you know, in the uh, wake of no net neutrality, are actually going to take their time before rolling out any of um, the practices like throttling, like paid prioritization, to A, avoid the PR battle and the court of public opinion, um, but, you know, also because it just makes more sense for them to slowly roll out some of these things that were um, fought for and fought against in the net neutrality battle. What kind of effect would a slow drip of paid prioritization, of um, throttling, of blocking of content, what kind of effect would that have on the small and independent ISPs if the large players start to change course and ramp up some of those practices? 
Right. So that's a, that's a good question. I mean, I, I think that, you know, part, part of the challenge with the slow rollout and the benefit of it is it's, it's harder to notice, right? Um, you know, if, if tomorrow is 30 degrees hotter than today, you're going to notice. Uh, but if it's one degree hotter and it keeps increasing by one degree for 30 days, you're less likely to, to notice in any dramatic way the, the change, right? Um, and in fact, you know, I wrote that article, I think, what, maybe a year, year and a half ago. One of the things, predictably, the ISP company started saying six months out of the end of net neutrality is, look, none of the harm you said would happen would happen. And of course, the response is, no, we said that you would wait so we wouldn't be able to say that. Like, it's, you know, they're not dumb and, and neither are we. You know, but the challenge for um, a lot of the, the small and mid-sized ISP companies is actually their reach, right? Um, that that um, in a lot of areas, um, you have, uh, you know, individuals, businesses, uh, government entities who really only have access to one internet service provider, or if they have access to multiple internet service providers, they're both fairly large. And so it is difficult for the smaller ones to be able to kind of crack in to, to, to kind of that, that marketplace. It would certainly be, I think, a, a major benefit of theirs to be able to come in and say, look at the way we provide a net neutrality-based service and look at what those big companies are to be able to compete with them on net neutrality. But the problem is, is that by doing the drip method, the customers don't realize that there is a problem. And so in the absence of a customer base that recognizes a problem, it's very hard for those small and mid-sized companies to come in with a solution. And I think that is another reason why the kind of drip, drip, drip to less and less, uh, you know, open uh, and free Internet through net neutrality is the, the strategic approach that the larger ISP companies are taking. All right. So we are in legislative limbo, obviously, uh, net neutrality is dead. We are waiting to see how states are going to respond um, you know, say the federal repeal holds through the next administration, whether Republican or Democrat, doesn't matter. I'm going to ask you to play king here for a little bit. What does ideal regulation look like for you that not only encourages authentic Internet growth and Internet freedom, but takes into account some of the um, the issues raised by the smaller independent ISPs, uh, you know, that are also trying to be competitive in the telecom market? Yeah, well, well, my answer is quite simple. Restore the open internet order. That's it. Um, to the extent that, the, the, again, the smaller and mid-sized ISP companies feel that that, that, that that regime and some of its secondary and tertiary regulations is disadvantaging them, let's talk about that, right? That's something that, that we can work on. But the kind of the pillars that, that you cited kind of at the beginning of this interview, uh, you know, of, of internet, no blocking, no throttling, no paid prioritization, no online discrimination based on content. Those have got to be restored. That is what the, that is the free and open internet that the internet was intended to be. That is the free and open internet that Americans want overwhelmingly from their internet. So that has got to be the internet that we deliver for Americans. It also, by the way, is an internet that in the 21st century is absolutely critical to an open and free democracy in our country, uh, to making sure that information can flow freely uh, between you know, those with opinions and those who want to receive that, those opinions. And so that is critical. These other kind of secondary issues are something that, that, that can be addressed, and certainly I think everyone should be open to discussing them, because I do think providing you know, internet service in rural areas is very important. But again, I think it is, it is a fiction to say that there is a link or, or there is somehow a kind of a zero-sum game between providing an open and freer internet and providing rural internet access or an open and freer internet and, and giving an opportunity for smaller and mid-sized ISPs to thrive. I think those are, those are, that, that's a false situation. Uh, and it, it, it's one that, that, that should not be carried through to any future discussion about legislation. All right, Chad Marlowe, Senior Advocacy and Policy Counsel at the ACLU. Thank you so much for joining us on Ratified. Always a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. All right, everyone. So we've been hearing from not only Chad Marlowe at the ACLU, but Matt Polka at ACA Connects. And something new that we're going to be rolling out here on Ratified is something we're going to call the Bear Brief, joined by our very own John Bear. John Bear is a policy nut. He is a uh, 
digital marketing strategist here at MarketScale, and he's going to be joining in on the research process of Ratified, um, helping craft some of the questions and the flow to really get a second pair of eyes. And of course, we've got to get his thoughts on the key takeaways from the two conversations we just heard and really just round out a few, uh, you know, food for thoughts for you as you leave this episode. So, John Bear with the Bear Brief, how you doing? Daniel, it's a pleasure. Uh, I am really looking forward to being a part of this podcast. Uh, you know, the first time I saw Ratified up online, I said, I got to get in on that. Yep. And, uh, you were fast. You were chomping at the bit, my friend. Indeed, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, just jumping into this wonderful debate we have here, uh, you know, I think that the grandest takeaway, and, uh, you know, you probably know what I'm going to say already, <laughs> is this tension we have between the individual liberties argument that's, you know, kind of coming out of the ACLU side of things. And obviously the protections argument for small to medium-sized operators that's coming out of the business side of things. There's a lot of interesting points here. But uh, the biggest takeaway is that this is a constitutional argument. And this is one that's going to be duked out and probably reduked out. This is going to go to the mat a couple of times. There's no doubt about it. At the moment, it seems that the legislative branch of the government and the judicial branch of the government is to a certain extent, uh, they're siding with the business arguments here. And, uh, you know, I think that's really, really interesting. And particularly after hearing uh, Mr. Marlowe's arguments with regards to the individual liberties that are at stake here and the reasons why net neutrality really needs to come back and have its day in front of the legislative branch. Uh, you know, I think he makes some pretty compelling arguments there because uh, at the end of the day, it is the First Amendment, right? You know, much has been written about it. Everybody talks about the right to free speech and expression. And, uh, you know, I think it's very, very fascinating that uh, at the end of the day, too, you find the business side of things kind of turning that argument back to the small and independent operators. Uh, you know, without a doubt, this is something that's going to have to be clarified. And, uh, you know, we're going to see this in the courts and uh, in front of the legislature for probably years to come as we kind of figure out what the parameters of this are going to be. In the UK right now, there is a party, Labour Party, that is proposing uh, free broadband. Basically, we are going to deploy broadband for everyone and it is going to be a free service. That is a, uh, a nationalization of broadband. Um, but it definitely speaks to the civil liberties and the the uh, human rights arguments that seem to persist with the net neutrality argument. And I wonder, can we find a middle ground that not only acknowledges the needs of our market incentivized United States that uh, benefit small businesses, that encourage small and medium-sized ISPs to thrive and to bring services to their communities, but at the same time don't impinge on the uh, freedom of expression and the freedom of access to lawful content that seem to be so uh, important in this net neutrality argument. So I I wonder if if we're going to get to that middle ground. Uh, It seems like it's going to take a while, though. Yeah, without a doubt. I think, uh, you know, spoiler alert, I'll put the cart before the horse on this one. You know, the problem with that is that it is so distinctly un-American to have a nationalized broadband access, right? You know, the businesses are happy because at some level, they're probably being subsidized for that activity. And the individuals are happy because they get free broadband. Right. But, you know, it's just not the way that we traditionally approach how business and government interact in this country. You know, we are firmly entrenched in free market. And, you know, while I think that that's a good thing and a net win in the long run, it does kind of raise some interesting questions. You know, could it be done better? Um, I find it fascinating that as I'm listening to both of the discussions that you've had today with our guests, how easily I find myself siding with small or medium-sized operators when it's all about just making sure that they're not monopolized by the giants, Um, you know, that they're not getting quashed because there is actually competition and that there needs to be some level of, you know, regulation on a light touch that allows them to be able to innovate and to, you know, invest in their own technology and to help to build this broadband infrastructure, particularly in rural areas, you know, then I find it extremely compelling when we hear that, no, well, if we don't have net neutrality, then we're not going to have free and open internet. Um, So, you know, it's kind of like, where does the 
scale balance there. You know, which of these countervailing interests, which may not even be fair to say, is going to kind of win out and need to be not only the balancing act, but kind of the arm between those two ends of the scales. And, uh, you know, that's what we're going to be keeping our eyes on, and that's what we're going to come to see. Uh, But, you know, I'm just excited to keep an eye on it and be a part of it. John, thank you for the bear brief. Thank you, Daniel. All right, everyone. This has been another episode of Ratified, your market scale live radio show exploring the intersection of business and policy. Hope you enjoyed this deep dive on net neutrality. Like Chad, like Matt, like John all explained, this is an ongoing issue and one that uh, is going to be extremely nuanced because it is in the hands of the states moving forward. So I hope you stick around with Ratified because we're going to continue to do some follow-ups on this particular piece of legislation, especially if we see more states passing their own versions of net neutrality here uh, in the next few months, as well as speaking with hopefully some more uh, ISPs and some more net neutrality advocates to continue to unpack this, this layered issue and really understand how can we serve not only the free speech and uh, access to information arguments and create an internet ecosystem that is respectful of the end user and the access to information that has become so dependent on our uh, you know way of life, <laughs> not only here in America, but worldwide, but combining those interests with the interests of small and independent ISPs small businesses that are looking to provide these services to their communities. What is the best way forward? How can we mesh those interests and create something that acknowledges not only solid business practices, but access to information and a free and open internet. So thank you everyone for listening along. It's been a pleasure bringing you this episode. We will be back hopefully in two weeks with some fresh content. And I think before then, maybe a follow-up with another perspective from the electronic Freedom Foundation. I believe that's the acronym. It's definitely EFF, but we're going to be exploring more net neutrality here soon. Thanks everyone for listening along. I'm Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B, and you've been listening to Ratified.